0: The, the NFL stands for not for long. Yeah, Second job.
1: down and goal from just inside the two. Backs offset. Sharga and Armstead. Rollout. Walker still running out. Looks to the left. Wide open Thompson touchdown. Colin Thompson with the touchdown. There was nobody within 20 yards of him. What a catch off the bobble. Colin Thompson scoops it up. Locked in corner, the end zone. It is caught for
2: the touchdown. The first NFL touch for Colin Thompson
1: is a
0: score. Welcome into episode one of Not For Long Media. I'm your host, Colin Thompson, and we are brought to you by Wealth Advisory Services, a personal approach to managing wealth. Paul Krugmanacker, David Jenkins, I call him Jank. They're just great guys and someone that my family trusted and I have trusted now for a decade. They can assist at all levels, really, of investor, which is, means a lot for me. Because now with some money from playing in the NFL, I didn't really know what I was doing before. And now I need to know what I'm doing. And they do a great job explaining it. The best part for me, it's open line of communication, text calls, any questions I have, they're on it. They do a great job. Check out their website, WealthAdvisoryServices.com. If you don't know them, you really should. Also brought to you by the Fudge Kitchen, the original Fudge Kitchen down here at the Jersey Shore. It's a family business near and dear to my heart. They ship fudge, saltwater, taffy, Irish potatoes, folks. It's almost St. Patty's Day across the country. 50 years of business. They know how to do it right. They really do. FudgeKitchens.com, the original Fudge Kitchen, creamy fudge. It's a great gift, birthday gift, the holidays. St. Patty's is coming up. You know some people, of, you know some of your friends are huge. Irish Potatoes fan. So send them some. And again, Fudge Kitchen and Wealth Advisory Services. We appreciate your sponsor. John Chaney intro. Guys, this is somebody that I've learned a ton about and have tons of respect for. Coach John Chaney, a Temple legend, basketball coach, college basketball legend, on and off the field, just, or the court, excuse me, just so impactful. It just cannot be measured. A little bit about coach. He was born in Jacksonville, Florida, January 1st, 1932. He ended up passing away in Philadelphia, where he was raised January 9th, 2021. Not too long ago. He will be missed by many. He played basketball at Bethune-Cookman. He later played in the Eastern Pro League. You're going to learn a little bit about that from Harry Donahue, why he did not play in the NBA. He married his wife, uh, Janine, and they had one daughter named Pamela. He was head coach at Temple for 24 seasons, from 82 to 06, 17 national uh, tournament appearances and really, he only failed to make the NIT uh, or the tournament in his first season. I wanted to read you this; I thought it was so interesting. When Coach started at Cheney State, where he ended up winning a Division Two national title, he was there from '72 to '82. He only missed the March Madness version of Division Two twice in those ten seasons, and then he was at Temple, obviously for a long period of time, and he only missed the NIT. Or the NCAA tournament one time in his first season at 82. Again, he was there from 82 all the way to 2006. So three times in his career, he missed a tournament. And he coached for a very, very long time. He's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. He's in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. His impact is just immeasurable. And and you're just going to hear my reactions. And Harry Donahue's on. uh, Mike Jensen's on from the Inquirer. Kevin Agani of ESPN are on and they just all talk about their experiences with coach. They all have a few different stories to tell. It's really one of the most fun interviews I've had because I got to learn so much about a coach and a man who has just changed so many lives. It just, it's incredible. You're going to hear Harry Donahue talk about how he changed him as a person and Harry called Temple basketball game starting in 2002. Harry was only with him for five or six years, but obviously calling Temple football games for almost 30 years now or over 30 years, he got to know Temple and Coach Cheney and Coach Cheney is Temple. Mike Jensen talks about how Coach Cheney changed the face of Temple University, literally and figuratively changed the face. The campus wouldn't be where it was or is today without him. And then Kevin Agani shares stories about Coach Cheney trying, trying, his mother's food and he just gets into all that. And Kevin and I get into some personal things and parenting and et cetera. So, Yes, it was fun, but also very sad because Coach Cheney will be missed. And thank you, Coach. Rest in peace. And and truly thank you for all you've done for Philadelphia, Temple, basketball as a whole. You can't just say college basketball. He changed it forever and really doesn't have anything to do with him running zone defense. It just has everything to do with what he's done off the field. And you're going to hear a little bit about that. So RIP Coach. And we're going to send it over to a little tribute to Coach here. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're not, you're just going to hear a little music. And then we're going to kick it right over to the Harry Donahue interview. Thanks, everybody.
2: Bloodshot eyes Up all night Causes me to be Slightly stressed A permanent guest Lost in living, worry free sun's coming up and trying to fill my cup.
0: Hope she's not mad at me. gas lights on, phone is out of battery. Not For Long Media is thrilled to have the great Harry Donahue join our show to talk about the late, great, legendary John Chaney. Harry has called Temple Basketball Games on the radio in Philadelphia since 2002 he's traveled with the team he's gotten to know John Chaney on a personal level from being at practice being at games like I said traveling with the team and then you know professional level he's covered him for a very long time and really got to know the ins and out about John so I thought Harry was the perfect guest Harry is in the temple ring of honor he should be in the Philly sports hall of fame Pennsylvania sports hall of fame in my opinion he's worked inside golf on formerly of Comcast Sportsnet, now NBC, Sports Philadelphia. He's a St. Joe's Prep High School grad, St. Joe's University grad. He's a proud father, grandfather. He's just a great friend. He's someone who's always been there for me. He's someone who's a role model for me, someone I look up to, and took me under his wing when I got into radio and started doing color commentary for the first time. At Temple, Harry always teed up questions for me to get me involved and valued me as a part of the broadcast, even though we were a three-man booth uh, and at the times when I was down in the field. So truly someone that's done a ton for me, and I'm just honored to have him on the podcast talking about the late, great John Cheney. Here's the interview with Harry Downey. I hope you enjoy it. A legend, hero, gave back to the community man of Philadelphia, man of college basketball. But I wanted to get your perspective as well as the rest of the group that's joining this podcast. What does he mean to the picture, the grand scheme of college basketball? What is his lasting effect on college basketball? How did he affect it when he was in? How did he affect it when he came in? What was the initial
1: reaction? Just your overall thoughts on how he affected college basketball. Well, the whole landscape of college basketball, when it came to the coaches, when coach uh, got that job back in 1982, I guess it was from Peter Lee, of course, who was the president at Temple. It was so different than it is today. I mean, everything about the game, marketing wise, television conference, but even at his level as a coach, there were only, I want to say, two, three other coaches that were African-American of a national reputation at At the time, John Thompson was at Georgetown. Uh, Nolan Richardson was at Arkansas. Uh, George Raveling uh, was out at, I believe, Iowa, maybe Southern California. And then there was John Cheney. And and everybody in Philadelphia knew John, if you were familiar with basketball. Going back, you know, he was a great high school player in the city. Unfortunately, he couldn't get a scholarship coming out of Ben Franklin High School on Broad Street. And he had to go down to Bethune-Cookman. At the Division two level in play. And he was a native Floridian. So it was like going back home a little bit for him. Then he came up to the city. He coached in junior high. He coached at Simon Gratz and won and won. And then he went to Cheney and he won a national championship. And then Peter Leocoras, who I think among most people who knew what was going on back then, uh, he had a vision for the future. And he got rid of Wayne Harden as the football coach and hired a guy by the name of Bruce Arians, okay, uh, who was 30 years old and the youngest Division A coach at the time. And then he hired Don Casey, who went on to coach in the NBA. But he brought in this black coach from Cheney State at the age of 50, John Cheney. People say, what is he doing? You know, well, now as we look back, you know, almost 50 years later, we realized what he was doing. He was changing everything to the betterment of not only the game, but most importantly to the kids who are going to play the game. So John was a complex person, very much so. Maybe the smartest guy I've ever met in all my years of covering sports. By that, I mean, I don't mean just X's and O's in his profession, but in terms of being well-read and learned, he was. he was the teacher of the year in Pennsylvania. A lot of people don't know this. When he was a junior high teacher at Sayre Junior High School, he was awarded the teacher of the year. And he he said of all the honors he won, that was the most important honor that he ever received. And he went to the Hall of Fame. OK, so uh, it's tough to answer. But I, that's a little bit if you scratch the surface about the times when he became a coach and what he did over his course of 24 years at Temple And all the hundreds of players, and more importantly, not only at Temple, but around the country that he impacted. And of course, you know how a lot of black coaches today will say, I was inspired by just reading about Coach Cheney and seeing him. Did he have foibles? Yeah. And who didn't? Okay. And he was on a national stage and he committed some of those foibles. I'm talking about the Calipari thing and everything else. But he he made up the coach, Calipari. They became good friends. And John would be the first one to say, I'll tell you a story. He said one time, after the Calipari game, he had a bus home from Amherst. Gets home late at night to his house in Mount Airy. And you know where Mount Airy is. And he's lived there all his life. And there was nobody home. He's looking for his wife. He, Gene, Gene, where are you? Calls his daughter and says, where's your mother in his daughter says, she's over here with me and she's not coming home tonight to be with you. You made a fool of yourself today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, and I'm not coming over either. He realized he made a mistake, but that was John, you know, and uh, you took the good with the bad. You said he was well read. Is there a
0: particular conversation that you had with him? on the plane rides on the buses at the pregame meal night before, whatever it may be having a breaking bread that was just out of the norm. We weren't talking basketball. We're not talking, we're talking politics. We're talking
1: whatever that may be. Can you, can you speak on any of those interactions with him? Well, not maybe a specific one, but it was often because you would, you would ask John a question and maybe it was basketball related, obviously, and the next thing you know, he's talking about the big picture and how it goes beyond just basketball. It, it's in everyday life. And he used to have practice. Everybody says, you know, 530 practices and he'd get there. Players had to be there ahead of time, five o'clock. And then when he walked in, there were some days where he wouldn't even practice basketball. He would just have them sit on the floor at half court and he would talk to them about some, some issue that's going on in the world. And he wow. called it his life lessons. You know, so to say there, there was one, there were a thousand times. And, and you would, I can remember going to practice one day and, and having an arranged interview. And we, we used to do a show, a uh, coach's show weekly. And I would ask them a question. And like literally a half an hour later, I didn't have a time to jump in for a follow up question because he was still talking and answering the first question. He would just rumble on. And we'll go to uh, Or ramble on. <laughs> yeah. So, but he was, um, you could ask him about anything. You could ask him. He told me one time, he said, uh, how do you look at a, a kid and, and determine whether he's a good athlete or not? I said, well, you know, it's basketball. How's he score? How's he rebound? No, 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 no. He said, watch him run. He said, I don't care what sport. Watch him run. He said, you, you saw Jackie Robinson. Now, I'm old enough to have seen Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was a great football player at UCLA. He uh, ran track. And of course, baseball was the sport. But he said he's pigeon-toed. All good athletes are pigeon-toed. Now, I don't know. Did coach, did he have like data to back that up? Uh, It's pretty tough, right? But you know what I started doing, Common? I started watching kids as they ran and see whether they're pigeon-toed or not. Because John Chaney told me, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know what? Most of the good ones, they're pitching toad. <laughs>
0: yeah. Most of the good ones, I'll say this, they're a little quirky in their way, or, you know, you'll talk to a strength coach and they'll say, oh, his hips are tight. I'm like, well, you know, he's like the best athlete on the team. So
1: like, uh, you know, maybe. Okay. The next time you're at practice at a high level with a lot of high level athletes, check them out. Uh-huh. See when they run those sprints or patterns. See how many of them are pigeon-toed. I oh, ask perfect. them, are you pigeon-toed? <laughs> John Chaney says that's why you're a good athlete. I are going to say, man, con. we always thought you were a little weird, but not this weird. Well, you? okay. Yeah, tell them somebody, somebody else clued you in on it. <laughs> the Hall of Famer clued me <laughs> in. That's right. Um,
0: so we touched on the players. We touched on the meetings. And the sidebar, how important would he be in this day and age to talk and Whoa. I mean, with just all of the changes, the turmoil, the, the positive change and negative change over the last three, four years that we see, his impact now would be, it always was immeasurable, right? That's at least what I'm reading. His impact, and I'm bummed he didn't come speak to us with
1: the Temple. I missed him. I never met him. but Right. He, he used to come over. He would come. Yeah. Al Golden, I think, started bringing him over there. Jeff brought um, him over. Jeff Collins brought him over. Jeff Collins. Yeah. You had already left, right. Uh, yeah. By then. Yeah. Uh, yeah How impact- big would he be? Here, here's what I said uh, the other day, talking to some people, John Cheney never chased the stage by that. I mean, John didn't have marketing people molding him into a national spokesperson for this cause or that cause John Cheney just realized what was right and what was wrong as far as he was concerned and he addressed it whether it be in a post-game news conference or an interview over the phone with a writer whatever it was he didn't like prep on that okay there was no prep it was spontaneous and I said he never chased that stage but what happened was the stage chased him they came after him we would go to an NCAA tournament I you know how it is. They have news conferences for the players and the coaches before the game a day before. And, and you know, the average size, I'd say, at a at a tournament site, you'd have maybe 20, maybe if, if it's a big rated team, 25 reporters sitting there and he's up on a stage. Well, whenever John was there, it was SRO, because they knew they were going to get enough material. If they were a columnist or writer, they could they could fill up a whole week's worth of stories from one news conference for John Cheney, that was three his people. stage, you know, three
0: questions asked. That's it. And they just, that go. was
1: it. That was, and then he'd come off the dais and there'd be 10 reporters wanting you know, coach. Can I have a follow-up with you on this or that? And TV camera, it was like, and you only had one like sports information director from temple. there trying to handle this, you know, horde of people. So he never chased the stage, but the stage chased him and he had that platform. Now, like you said, fast forward, podcast, uh, all the different mediums that are now available. Oh my goodness. He'd have to have like five or six personal SIDs to schedule the amount of requests that would come in to have John Cheney address this issue or that issue, NCAA, whatever it would be. Yeah. Great
3: Pretty story important. too.
1: Here, here's a great story. The Atlantic 10, Temple used to, Belonged in Atlantic 10 before they got into the big, uh, or the uh, American Athletic Conference. So they, they used to, the Atlantic 10 used to hold its postseason tournament in Philly at the Palestra, and a lot of coaches didn't like that. You had three Philly teams there, so they thought it was a decided home court advantage. So where did they move it? They moved it to Dayton, Ohio. The reason being, Dayton had a huge core of supporters for college basketball. The play in game for the NCAA tournament is held at the UD arena. 13,000. they were, were going to sell it out. Dayton didn't have to play. they would sell it out for whoever's there. So when the Atlantic Ten announced they were going to move everything from Philadelphia to Dayton, Ohio, Coach started talking about how they're moving it to the sticks. They're going out there into a farm country. What are they doing that for? you know Well, when Temple played shortly after he made those announcements, and a lot of the people at the UD arena showed up like wearing straw hats and overalls, you know, looking like farm people. Right. And they started singing old McDonald had a farm when the temple players were introduced. It was a riot. What he Coach do? he went over to one of them, put on a straw hat. I think you can Google this and see a picture. And he just laughed, you know, he realized once again, you know, yeah, I was a fool probably for saying that now I'm going to show you, I'm a pretty nice guy. He had a way of doing that. He could, he could melt down a lot of criticisms with that big, I used to call it his chiclet smile. You know, he showed those chicklets and smiled, and all of a sudden, he was a whole different guy. He was a big, soft teddy bear. He could put on the armor, and he could go fight for a cause. But underneath, you scratch the surface, he was the kindest, most, you know, caring guy that uh, I've ever met. He seems like a guy who's just so
0: socially aware, and sometimes, <clears throat> like you said— but- in, yeah. in, in the world we live in today, a lot of coaches seem more like media aware, like what what's the right thing to say instead of like, this is what I'm going to say and I'm going to stick to it. Sure, there's going to be times where I'm up against it a little bit, but I'm not going to jump over the line and, and, and just dismiss all and being so well read, well spoken. And then. The soft touch of I'm going to put a straw hat on. He knows it's going to be on the front page of the paper the next day. John Cheney, nicest guy in the world, loves our town. He probably goes <laughs> and talks to the press after, but sure before that, he's saying we're going out to the sticks. You mentioned his players, Harry. How did his his players respond to him?
1: Well, with the <clears throat> fear of God, I mean he uh, he was in charge, and they knew it. Uh, the in terms of X's and O's. If you picked up two fouls in the first half of a game, I don't care if you were the best player on the team or whatever, you were coming out. And if it happened in the first two or three minutes of the game, you sat on the bench for another 17 minutes to the second half before you can go back. Because he did not trust you not to pick up a third foul. And he was going to make sure you didn't. You know why? You were going to be sitting next to him. So players knew that. And if you go over back scores I, I, every once in a while I'll, look back 25 years and coach pretty much stayed to a five or six man rotation. If you were on the bench for John Cheney, the chances are you weren't going to see a lot of minutes. Well, all those teams that went to the elite eight and you had five of them, I bet the average starter probably played maybe 32 minutes or more. That's a lot in today's day and age where you have guys bringing, you know, three, four, five subs into a game. You look at stat sheets, like the leading guy with minutes played is averaging maybe 24 minutes or something like that. That never happened on a Cheney team. He relied on his five starters, maybe a six man, and that was it. And uh, players knew that once they got out there, the only reason they would come out probably is if they picked up like two fouls or something like that early in the game. Then they were going to sit. So that makes you a more disciplined player, doesn't it? You know, if if you knew, say in football, I don't know if there's an apt similarity or not, but if you knew you were going to get called for holding early in the first quarter and you were going to sit out for the rest of the first half, <laughs> you probably weren't going to get caught holding too many times. I got right? a
0: story about this, Harry, and this is before we met. This is 2014, my first year at Temple. My first year really playing college football. I played three games at University of Florida. I transferred in. I, I missed the first two or three games. My first game was UConn. I played two plays or one play of the 2014 season. And then we played Tulsa at home. I ended up playing like 40 snaps and played the rest of the season. I led the team in penalties per snap. And it was a big thing. It was huge. And Foley is like, if you get another holding call, like I can't put you back in the game. Like, so there's the exact replica. And yeah. it was all just early being a young player and trying to do too much. And yeah. But
1: so. you remembered it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You remembered it. That's right. how you mold, that's how you mold guys. And he did that. And uh, he also had a rule that it was put into place because Mark Macon was probably his best, he was his best player. And Mark, pardon <clears throat> me, came in 87, 88 was his freshman year, and he was their leading scorer. And and players, you know, you lead the team in scoring, they were number one in the country. Everybody wanted to talk to Mark Macon. Well, early on in the season, coach realized what was happening, and he pr- pr- prohibited Mark Macon from being interviewed until the NCAA tournament began. He did not let Mark Macon be interviewed for Television, radio, writers, whatever. He said, nope, no more interview. He wanted him to be focused on one thing and one thing only, and that was the game. Okay. And he didn't want any distractions because he didn't want Mark maybe to say something that, you know, he shouldn't have said or in any way lead to some kind of distraction that would be a distraction, not just for Mark, but for coach and for the whole team. So he had what he called his freshman rule. And from that point forward, years after Mark Macon the left, as long as coach was there, I don't care how good the player was, freshmen were not allowed to talk to the media until the NCAA tournament. Then all of a sudden, OK, you can talk to them. We have achieved our goal. We made the tournament. Go ahead. You can talk to them. Now, is that, a, is that a rule that
0: you remember pushing up against and saying, I don't like this, or are you respected it? Over <laughs> you time? had
1: no, you had, hey, listen, I'll tell you a rule. <laughs> and I, I tell this, my wife is tired of hearing this story. My first year of doing games with uh, Temple Radio uh, basketball, I, my partner was John Baum and still is. John was a, maybe one of the top five Temple players of all time. Great guy. And uh, coach had a rule where we could travel with them on the plane. Now, there were no charters, we flew commercial, but as soon as we arrived, and you know Chet Sikowski, Chet the Chet, Chet Chet was our producer, and Chet would have to get a rental car. And he goes scrambling, you know, Chet, you know, come on, man, I got the car. (laughs) We couldn't get on the bus with the team. We were not allowed on the team bus to go from the airport to the hotel, and then from the hotel to the arena, never. So after about the third game, it's inconvenient, you know, between having to look for a rental car and all this and that. So I find one afternoon, I'm, I'm sitting with coach someplace. I said, coach, let me ask you something. I said, you know, you have this rule where Johnny and myself and Chet can't get on the bus. And it's a lot easier if we could, you know, I'm just wondering why, why do you have that rule? He said, you know why I have that rule? He said, because the only people allowed on our bus are essentials and you guys are non-essential. It was like, okay. I never brought it up again, Colin. And for the rest of the time, as long as coach was coaching, we flew with the team. We go to Los Angeles to play UCLA one time, get off the plane. Their bus is right outside LAX. We had to go get and go to the same hotel. But we couldn't get on the bus. And, you know, the bus is only half full. Right, like I'll sit back. Yeah. I'm fine. Put me on. I'll sit anywhere. You yeah. can put me underneath with the luggage. You know, it's just more <laughs> convenience. He didn't care. We were non essentials. <laughs> oh, that's
0: And obviously, you guys had plenty of interactions over the years. And he's another me. great story
1: yeah. regarding a bus. We go down to play Auburn. Okay, we stay at a hotel outside of Auburn, or Auburn, Alabama is not. You know, it's like state college, maybe smaller. So. Uh, we're sitting around. We arrive on a Saturday. The game's on a Sunday. And we're sitting, Johnny Baum and I and Chet, you know, the, the little bar having a drink. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Coach says, you guys hungry? And we go, yeah, we're thinking of ordering. and he's don't order anything. I'm going to go out and get some good local food. I said, well, where are you going? He said, no, oh, this soul food place down the road. I said, how would you hear about this place? He said, bus driver. I said, wait a minute. You're going to go with the bus driver? To, how are you getting there? He said, we're going to take the bus. I said, wait a minute. You and the bus driver are going to drive to a restaurant in Auburn to get food and bring it back. So here's what happened. An hour and 15 minutes later, he's back. He's got like five bags of food. He's got catfish, collard greens, jambalaya, all the specialties of the house. He said, okay, I want to see you guys eat this stuff. I said, coach, how did you get all this again? So the bus driver's with him. He said, tell them the story. The bus driver said they pulled up. It's coach and the bus driver on the team bus. Pull into the parking lot of this little tiny, like a little diner off the road in Auburn. The owner of the restaurant comes running out, thinking there's a tour bus or something pulling up. He's got 60 people and nobody called ahead of time. He's got one cook and himself. Who steps off the bus with coach? And the guys there looking at him, he goes, you're John Cheney. I mean, that's the other thing. Every place we went. Everybody knew coach, okay? He goes, you're John Chaney. What are you doing here, coach? He said, I hear you got good food. I'm here to buy some of it. So he went in, coach, the guy couldn't believe it, the chef. Here he is, you know, now he's got John Chaney in his place, a big bus sitting outside. And that was his mode of transportation that they Takes the bags of food, puts them on the bus, comes back to the hotel and he feeds us and tells us. He said, let's tell some lies. That's what he used to call a conversation. We're going to tell some lies. (laughs) <laughs> and that's, like, they were the best times with coach, not on the court, not at the arena, sitting back at the hotel. He had two rules for his operations guy for a road hotel. One, it had to have a bar and two, it had to have 24 hour room service. Otherwise, we're not staying there. Wow.
0: <laughs> so he, liked to have his, he liked to have his cocktails before the game. And he, it was,
1: he'd stay up late at night, either looking at temple film or video. Or, you know, a late NBA game. Yeah, he didn't sleep much, coach. You could call him at 1 o'clock in the morning and hit answer on one phone ring.
0: Two, two questions as we wrap up here. First, did, did he have any uh, interest in going into the
1: NBA? Did the NBA have any interest in him? Uh, I don't think he had any interest in going because I think he realized, you know, it would be a little tougher uh, to handle things the way he liked to handle them at that level. And he didn't even have interest in leaving Temple. He, he didn't tell me, but one of the ADs at the time told me that John had told him that one night, one morning he woke up and there was an envelope under his door. I think it was at a coach's convention or something like that. And it was a contract from a pretty big school. And where it said amount of compensation, it was written, fill in your price. And John didn't want to leave Philadelphia. He at his Hall of Fame speech gave a tribute to the man that hired him, Dr. Lee of and thanked him for everything he did for John Cheney. Now, of course, John Cheney did an awful lot for Peter and Temple University as we know now looking back. But John had noted, he lived in the same house as I said, for over 50 years It's where he died, in that house in Mount Airy, you know, a plain, simple, much like John Cheney. He was a very simple, plain guy. But once he got going, he took it to another level. And I think he, I don't think he even realized, I guess he did to some extent, but I know not to the full extent, how this plain, simple guy who was born in Jacksonville, Florida, lived in a very, very modest, tough home life in South Philadelphia, went on to become the great teacher, both in basketball and in life that he became. I'm not sure... Even to the day he died, he had the full impact. I'm sure he had a lot of it, but uh, I think his legacy will be coach. Even you probably didn't know how great you were.
0: That's a great point. You touched on his his childhood. Did he ever bring up his parents, how, how this man became a teacher and a mentor and so well read and. You know, he's winning national stage winning state teacher of the year awards. Did he ever bring up his parents or anybody? Yeah, he
1: did. He did. And his mother. I'm not sure if it was his mother or his grandmother who also lived with them, was blind or, you know, had poor vision. And that was a big part of his life. The other thing was he went to Ben Franklin High School in Philadelphia, which is only about what half a mile down Broad Street yeah. from uh, Temple's campus. And his coach was a a Jewish man who also was a caterer. And coach used to work for him when he was done practices at Ben Franklin High School and go to help prepare food. And he was a great cook. He loved to cook and he loved to shop for food. And he traces that back to his days of working for his high school coach and his catering business. And he learned how to his coach was Jewish. He had a lot of like catering events for uh, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and huge weddings and things like that. And coach got to interact with people that he probably never, ever would have been exposed to hadn't been for that high school basketball coach. And then in terms of, you know, his parents always, uh, you know, made him answer to them. And he, he does reflect, or did reflect on going back to the old neighborhood and seeing some people that he knew and how their lives didn't progress like his. And he traces it back to his upkeeping with his with his parents, who were strict and, and disciplined him, made him go to school, and then his high school basketball coach when he was a teenager, and how that had an impact on his life for the rest of his life.
0: He impacted so many he's a friend
1: of yours, a coworker, what did he mean to you? Well, he opened up my eyes to see things a lot differently than perhaps I would have seen them without having that voice in my ear of John Cheney. You didn't have to be around him too much in terms of minutes or hours or days to realize that his message was different than most people and he was consistent. He did, as I say, have his bumps in the road, but he was a man for all people. A lot of people say, you know, well, John Cheney was like maybe racist. I I used to say, just do me a favor. Imagine walking a mile in his shoes and experiencing what he experienced as a youngster and tell me you wouldn't be different. That's, That to me was the biggest impact I had realizing that not everybody lived as I did or you did, but if you lived the same life that John Cheney did, chances are you'd have a different outlook on the world we live in today.
0: It's probably the biggest blessing that that I have playing in pro sports, college sports at the highest levels. You're, you're, you're just growing up. It, You opened your eyes exactly how you said it, Harry. It opens your eyes to a different side of the world times
1: 1,000 than what you can even relate to. Right. Harry. Hey, my friend, good to see you. Good luck with this. Okay.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Uh, The great Harry Donahue. We appreciate it. Thank you, Colin. I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with the great Harry Donahue talking about the late, great. John Cheney. Obviously, you can tell Harry and John were friends, co-workers. They shared meals together. They traveled together, all the above. You could hear the stories that Harry told and just so much love and respect. And Harry said, as a man, I changed. I learned. I got to see another perspective of the world. I got to understand truly what someone else was going through, what it was like in their shoes. What We touched on that a little bit in the Kevin Agandhi interview. Mike Jensen's coming up next, but Kevin Agandhi's in two interviews from now. Harry shared some great stories and I really hope you guys enjoyed I think the biggest takeaway for me from what Harry had to say was just the impact that coach Chaney had on college basketball on college athletics as a whole will never be measured because he's helping kids get into school that maybe couldn't get into school. They changed so many people's lives by doing that. We'll never be able to count. We never will be able to count, but it's pretty impressive how he just was able to, Really, it seems like Coach Cheney, you know, balanced a lot of balls. He had a lot of balls in the air. He was juggling a lot. He, he was talking about food. He was talking about social issues. He was talking about, you name it, really, basketball, obviously, at the, the highest level, won a national championship at, at the Division two level. And then uh, to get to where he did at Temple at the time was not the best basketball program. So pretty impressive. You could see the differences around the campus, and we're going to get into that with Mike Jensen. Mike Jensen has covered me when I was a player uh, at Temple, and – Mike uh, writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer and he's covered a bunch Smarty Jones, World Cup of Soccer and he covered a decade of John Janey. So I thought that he would be the perfect perfect person to come on and Mike, we're gonna send it over to Mike Dentoner something, something, something you get attracted to that light that shines on water. So, Mike, I want to be transparent with you. When I was putting this interview together, I sat down. I'm writing all the temple people that I think would be able to contribute. And I'm scrolling through Facebook last night and you and I've, you know, done some work together over the years. Uh, and I see you on Facebook, quote, is a 7000 word oral history of John Janey too long question mark asking for a friend end quote I said all right I'm texting Mike right away Mike's coming on the podcast he's the perfect guy to come
3: on so when when I asked that question I'd already filed 7,000 words it was it was just a little promo was that (laughs) like, like putting that together you know it's it's talking to all sorts of people you know uh it and uh, meaning that it was memory lane for me. I covered John Cheney for the last nine years of his career and, and w- was around earlier, was up in Massachusetts for Goon Gate, or excuse me, that wasn't Goon Gate. That was going after Calipari. Uh, I'm a little loopy at this point, but it, it, it was special putting that together. I could have written 70,000 words. I think I talked to 26 people. I could have talked and talked to 260 people easily uh, so it was, it was a, a, a labor of love. It's going online uh, th- this week. Um, but it, but it was, uh, it was, it was kind of special uh, to, to, to do that. I also wrote something about just what it was like to cover him for, for the Sunday paper.
0: So I don't even know where to go with, to start when it comes to this history of John Cheney, but I'll start here. Was there something you know, I'm sure there's a 100 stories you got that you're like, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. But is there one that was special that hit you that you're now telling your friends about or your family about? Like, wow, this is a really cool story.
3: It, it's, I mean, yeah, his whole life to, and, and I started covering him at the end. So his life had been written about. I mean, right after he went up after John Calipari, suddenly Gary Smith had clearly been working on the story about the life of John Chaney, and And there it was. Uh, the life of John Cheney in, in Sports Illustrated—that is like cinematic. Uh, of, of, I mean, because again, you're talking about—I um, uh, mean, this got very personal. That story, but but you're talking about a guy who was uh, publicly player of the year in Philadelphia, uh, who was recruited by exactly zero Big Five schools. It went went to Bethune-Cookman, right? Uh, you're talking about a guy who was good enough to be the MVP of the Eastern League, which was the second best league in the world at the time, uh, but couldn't play in the NBA because there were racial quotas at, at, at the time. You think about, can you imagine not being able to be, no, we don't need you to be our seventh or eighth man because we're going to take the, this other guy and you do this other path. So, you know, how he transferred that and went into coaching and teaching uh Sayer. Junior High, uh, Simon Gratz High School, Cheney University, uh, and and then, I mean, the stories. I mean, then to turn out to be the funniest person you ever met. Uh, so so the, the stories. I mean, you would, you saw the rage come out at times, uh, but he, you know, how he said things. And in some some of it was just a, you know, blind man got no business at the circus. I mean, he was just kind of a street in addition to be a street philosopher. So, you know, I mean, the memories sometimes are like once a year, uh, Dayton Marriott, instead of holing up in his room, he'd come down to the bar after the game. And I can remember one year being there and he's spinning stories for like two hours. Everybody's laughing. You don't even realize there's two guys at the next table who are just, you know, staying at the hotel. They didn't say a word. They never said a word. Then all of a sudden, this one guy slapping the table because he's laughing so hard, and you didn't even know he was—he was there just because John was John was being John. So there were a lot of sort of misnomers about John being John because covering John, I always said he gave you full access to his brain, uh, and, and and I wrote the story that I sort of had a working theory that basically anytime you thought John was crazy he showed you that he knew exactly what he was doing but anytime you thought he knows exactly what he's doing he showed you he was crazy so yeah there, there couldn't be a better guy to cover and, and i had i was blessed i mean i covered the the matt rule era of, of of temple football writing columns i you know they throw us all into eagles super bowl phillies world series runs covered villanova covered Smarty Jones. I'm um, Barbara horse racing. You know, epic saga is the highlight of my career. Is covering this man you're talking about. We're talking. Pilot of wow. And and in Philadelphia,
0: huge media market when it comes to sports. Tons of stars throughout the year. Integral part of American history, but also the sports history world. And that's what we're talking about. And John Chaney is is at the top of it. What is his impact on college basketball? Is it everlasting? Did he come in and rewrite the book of how to become, how to be a head coach, how to come up through the ranks? And really coaching just d detuned. And now he put Temple on the map. He won a national title, but he put Temple on the map. He changed college basketball in Philadelphia. Obviously a ton of history there. He changed college basketball nationwide.
3: What is his impact? on college basketball. His his massive impact, and first I'll I'll, uh, note that he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame because of who he is, because of what he fought for, because uh, he was right there with John Thompson uh, being a loud, loud megaphone uh, for what was wrong with NCAA initial eligibility issues. but he's also in the Basketball Hall of Fame because five Final Eights, I said he ran out of a program he ran out of his back pocket in a little office with no window. Just, it's just mind-boggling, the success that he had. And, you know, so you're talking about on the court, they didn't even count turnovers in the box score. And everyone you talked to going back 40 years was like, that was his whole thing. It was like, if we don't turn the ball over, we can win the game. Just get a shot, Nate Blackwell said. Figure out how to how to get a shot, uh, and and we will win the game. And then we'll do these other things to mess with the other team to help us win the game. So there was all that. But when you're asking, talking about impact, it really hits now that he's died to see the number of black coaches, head coaches around college basketball, who who pay homage to this man and and. And say that you know their careers, it, and it wasn't just opening the door. And I mean that was obviously vital. It was crucial, uh, but it was also to offer them a, a, a path to see this man uh, doing the things that he was doing. This 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 brilliant man, this crazy man, uh, doing it his way and having success uh, just all over the landscape. Uh, you, you you saw those tributes in college basketball this week, and it and it was stirring.
0: So you're saying, which I, which I love, direct correlation to players entering academically the academic issues that were before. I mean, that is massive. That changed all sports. Yeah. That's not just basketball. That I mean I, I, how it's changed in. College football over the years, I've, I've been a part of that. You know, T scores, this, that, the other thing. Getting in the open-mindedness of, hey, we're here to help these players change their lives. Just let them into our program, give us a chance. Black coaches, change that landscape. The landscape of Temple, you can see how big the stadium is. The basketball stadium, uh, the arena, the, the banners, Uh, really now two basketball arenas at Temple, the -the state-of-the-art practice facility where as a student athlete, right when I was sitting in study hall, all the NBA teams would walk past us because the NBA teams practice there. It's the best facility in Philadelphia. You mentioned the impact nationwide. For decades, what is his impact on Temple University?
3: Yeah. and I mean, you just can't overstate it because you're talking about the athletic facilities. I'll say the whole campus. I'll say the whole campus. I, I was talking to Nate Blackwell, who played there in the 80s, uh, came up from Southern High School, South Philadelphia High School. And he said it wasn't a place people were dying to go at, at, at all at the time, the whole campus. And now people streamed a temple from the suburbs. You can't get in. The the admissions standards are, are, are tough. Uh, so and to see buildings see dorms see you know you you know the names of them you know Morgan Hall up on Broad Street and, and it was like you know uh, just a whole different atmosphere sure the students lived on campus but it was a it was like a commuter school and and i don't know how much you know the percent of of that is is due to John Cheney you know Peter Lee, of course, his legacy, a lot of people, I'm not giving him 100% of that, but you're sure giving him way, way, way more than 0% that, that 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 happened, that Temple became something because of uh, John Chaney uh, and him him coming in. And, and you're right that your football facility is different than, I was just talking to this week, as, as part of this oral history, it didn't even make the oral history, just shooting the breeze with his former executive assistant. Uh, John DeSangro, who's now a, a producer at uh, NBC Philly, talking about how back in the day of McGonagall, there would be uh, Cheney in his little office in the basement, Bruce Arians around the corner uh, in his office, just up one flight and, and they, they'd all be together, you know, watching each other's practices. Uh, the teams just had one weight room together in, in, in the back of McGonagall Hall. There was no, there was no practice gym He said it was a public thoroughfare. So you can imagine some of the things that were, were heard by uh, students walking past in, in, uh, if they got there early, early in the morning. So I don't know if that covers all of it. I'm not even sure it does, but that's, that's a start.
0: That's been the resounding responses so far doing this podcast, talking about coach Cheney, as I don't know where to start. I don't know where to end the, you know, you're doing a, in oral history there's been millions of articles the tweets you brought up Bruce Arians a lot of people paid their respects on long tweets this isn't just hey RIP this is how you affected me how you affected our program how did he affect his players
3: I mean talking th- this week t- so so talking to Nate Blackwell ended up being an assistant coach he said he said I mean all these guys they came from So many of them came from tough existences because you had to be ridiculously tough to get through the John Cheney experience. And so he was ticking off guys. This guy came from there, a tough area. And now his kids were going through this experience, getting to college basketball from a suburban experience. Nate joked about his own son thinking he's tough. He's not tough. Uh, he He didn't grow up in the ghetto. But I mean, John you know, sometimes you didn't want it to just to be about that because he was more than that. He was such a good basketball coach, but that was at the core of it was. And I remember talking when he went into the hall of fame about one of his first recruits who was prop 48. So prop 48 meant some leagues couldn't take you if you had less than a combined SAT and grade point average. So Eddie Jones, one of the great, possibly even, you know, he's in the, top five of great Temple players uh, from Florida, started the school, uh, the school you started at, couldn't take him. Uh, he Was he good enough to play for Florida? Yeah, he was. Well, John Chaney was not just happy to take him, made, made sure that this was, was you know, this is what he was all, all about, really, was, was that. And then I was getting to another first player who said, it was so tough, he was ready to just about quit. And his mother was like, this man gave you a shot. This is your life. And he ended up being a Philadelphia police officer. Um, but he said, you know, life changed on a dime by, by walking in that gym. It's funny,
0: you brought up covering the coach rule error and the similarities and, and the toughness and the true embodiment of Temple Tough, which Coach Cheney started. And that was, I mean, that hasn't changed in coach rule. Obviously, professionally in the NFL, things are a little bit different than college. Your control is a little bit different. These are professional athletes. But it's funny. You bring up Temple Tough. You bring up a story about people going home to mom and dad saying, I'm done. I'm not going back. The stories of, of, of that are endless. Uh, Nate Harrison's in the NFL I believe that's one of his stories he's a corner for the Jets um, the stories of that are endless with coach rule I, I know several of them I can only imagine the coach Cheney ones um, I, I can only imagine but it's the Temple Tough thing is something that um, I've heard ring through NFL stadiums I mean NFL uh, uh, facilities as I walk through them with the Giants I've told that story many times of coaches screaming on the hallway Temple Tough Temple Tough and I'm like, turning my head, I'm like, I'm the undrafted guy. Here's Evan Ingram, first round pick, standing right next to me. Shouldn't you be saying, Old Miss, Old Miss? You know, <laughs> he's your future. I don't know how long I'll be here. Um, so it, it, it's true. And that started with Coach Cheney. It's amazing his impact. I'm an undrafted player with the Giants. No business being in that building next to some of the players I'm with. And Coach Chaney rang ran through the halls. It's pretty impressive. Also, you talked about campus, Coach Rules' impact of campus. Was massive as well, and and the you know uh, people applying to that school after the Notre Dame game and the Penn State game and our conference championship and how visible Temple became. The visibility of Temple because of Coach Cheney is that even measurable when it comes to a national scale of where Temple was before to where it was when he left the
3: program. And you probably had other people. Uh, great question. You probably had other people. Getting to this, that his sort of will play anybody, anywhere, anytime. Uh, play two road games for one neutral game just to get on national television. When I mean now, everyone knows you can you can pick up your phone and hit ESPN Plus and watch a live game from you know anywhere, anytime. It was not that way. There was we're talking about ESPN just coming up and not and and, and not. To the stage they are now and you know no new no espn too so basically national games on nbc and abc for him to get on those games and what it took uh to, to get it going uh but let's face it you can't just play him you got to win them. uh you gotta you, you gotta show that hey this is who we are so putting them on the map peter lee leo course was a was a big believer in that the, the president who hired uh john Cheney that, front door, the costs of it. I mean, I, I've written a lot of football stories going back before your time, before Matt Rule's time, Peter Lee, who was gone by the time uh, Matt Rule became the head coach. uh, He he was a big believer that uh, being national meant being national in sports. Uh, And, you know, he didn't know when he hired the Cheney University coach you know, on a recommendation from Sonny Hill that that this man was going to do those things, but uh, it turned out to be a perfect marriage, obviously, to to put it to understate it supremely uh, uh, the, the marriage between John Cheney and temple. I mean, I, I can't I can't come up with somebody that's a better fit of man and school than John Cheney. And I'm not even talking about coach in school. I mean, man in school, and John Chaney and Temple. He
0: was worldly. That's what Harry Donahue said. He was extremely knowledgeable about just the landscape of the world. He wasn't just a pure basketball coach. You'd ask a basketball question, he'd get into it, and then he'd go somewhere else with it and talk about the world. How important would he be in in the day and age today where players, including myself, need to be educated more on X, Y, and Z when it comes to social issues, politics. Um, We've just got almost the majority I'll say, or some, I should say, I don't want to be misquoted here. Just turn it off and focus on the game. And now there's a, my opinion, a responsibility as an athlete to be educated on some of these topics And I've spent a lot of time reading and and trying to learn more And, and and the beauty of my work is I get to go to work every day with men that don't look like me didn't grow up like I did and I get to learn so much about what it was like to be somebody else in a different city different town different financial background you know people that had a ton of money people that had no money people that didn't have power they did et cetera. And I got to learn. And I I'm so blessed for that, to have the open mind to learn about it. And, and, and that's, you know, another subject, but coach Shaney talked about many and many different things other than just sports. Is there anything that sticks out to you in your conversations with him over the years that you say, wow, but this guy is a different type
3: of coach. So, so many. And I'll go from last to first. I mean, the last time I, I talked to him for a column was when the country was on fire this summer. I said, let me, let me, let me call John and see what he Brilliant. thinks. And Brilliant. we talked for an hour and there was a column that, that touched the surface of, of that hour conversation, but got the highlights of it. Just hearing John and actually hearing John about how is very interesting about his optimism for the country because of what he saw there, seeing young people. And he said, seeing white people out there, that mattered to him a lot. Uh, to hear his views, you, you always, and some of, you knew his views. You didn't have to ask about his views. You just had to be within hearing range of John. Uh, I remember when, when he was getting a lifetime achievement award from the Wanamaker like five years ago. And man, you, you you know, I can't remember who he was calling. Well, I remember who he was calling. I think he was calling him and Tweedledum. And you knew exactly where he was going and how, the mayor had been there, but had left. He goes, yeah, the mayor's always leave before I speak. And, and, uh, but I can go back to the first time I think I ever really had a conversation with John way before I was covering him. And he was, it was at city hall for something. So it was something non-basketball, but it was something about these eligibilities. And I said some, something to him, just the two of us talking about, uh, well, if you can go to Texas or you can go to Harvard, you know, makes sense if you're going to choose going to Harvard for an education. And he took like 10 minutes to explain how that was bullshit, uh, about how you could get an education at Texas or Temple or anywhere else. And that, you know, everyone didn't have the access to Harvard, and, you know, all, all the rest. And, and, and the. And he, and he explained it to me, and I, I just sort of never forgot that, that it was, uh, um, you know, um, what you put into it is, is way more than, you know, what some admissions directors said. And, and again, he didn't, he didn't mention he'd gone to Bethune-Cookman or anything like that. And at that point, he was, uh, you know, he had, he had been the number one coach of the number one team in the country already at that point. He had nothing to prove to anybody.
0: Sounds a whole lot like Temple Tuff, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, he, and he, he was great to cover. And then, but like once a year I threw in the piece, you get a phone call and, Hey, you got a second for coach Cheney? I said, sure. And I always said, he, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't calling to compliment you on a nice adjective. He was, you know, there was something that he wanted to get through. And the first time I got one of those calls, I made the mistake of trying to debate him back or, to kind of argue my points back and it just didn't go well at all so eventually I was sort of like you know quickly actually not eventually I quickly learned you know you hold the phone sort of here let him go and by the end he's MFD you enough and he's gotten his points across and he's laughing uh and he's and, and that was that was John John actually he he loved all that he loved you know someone just told me a story this week a, a close friend of his about how Jehovah's Witness came up to his door and he started in about about religion and John started in back at him and it got to the point that the guy left, that he brought his boss back, some other, some boss Jehovah's Witness, and he started debating and John said that uh, only God himself could settle his argument and get away from his door. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. He's he's absolutely a classic.
0: He's incredible And, and we'll finish up with this one his impact on you uh and, and your personal relationship with him covering him for years
3: yeah and, and i always it was a it was a uh personal professional relationship and even after retirement i didn't say oh john's my friend now he didn't say oh jensen's my friend now you know it was it was, you know that way he had enough friends and i i have enough friends uh, but it was it, but but it was a very it was a uh an important Relationship in, in, in my life, you know, professionally, uh, at, at the top of it, and I, and I've tried to give a little sense of, you know, what I learned from it. Uh, you know, you don't you, you you walk into something, and and I can remember because it's John Cheney, you can remember the first practice and him showing me footwork thing that he'd been thinking about, and 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 I wrote about this too. I I always took that as a metaphor that that all this crazy stuff that you know he was going to say and that I was going to write about don't forget he's a basketball coach and that footwork is the most important thing and you know that's what he was he was doing first for his guys and that was an important lesson too
0: before I let you go is there a uh, favorite story that you be, I know there's a ton and I know I'm
3: putting you on the spot here Favorite story. Let's see. Favorite story. Number one. Now, even on a podcast, definitely couldn't say in the paper, not even in a podcast, call me <laughs> later. I'll tell you that story. Uh, it's, it, it involved language uh, yeah. and, and language at practice. Uh, you know, so there are just too many that I, that I, I, I don't have one, but uh, sort of seeing uh, John's uh, practices. They were from 6 to 8, 8 a.m. in the morning, famously. But then I always said if, if they practiced from 2 to 4, uh, he would have been like everybody else saying, hey, I don't got time for you. You know, call me later or something and, and get out to dinner. But because they were so early and he was just going to his office, he'd go to his office and he never, he wouldn't kick you out. So that that's the memory that I had, that just the cumulative hours of access to his brain are just not possible in this day and age anymore. Uh, it, it, it was, you know, for somebody like Mike Kern and my predecessors on the Inquirer beat, Mike Kern for the Daily News uh, and, and others, uh, we got just more of, of John than anyone would possibly give anyone at any level of sports right now. And that, and that may
0: be the what he gave back to Temple. Yeah, the wins and all that is great. Yeah the access that's unheard of, you know, obviously yeah. zoom and COVID. Yeah. But
3: that before, made his ADs nervous, by the way. Yeah. Like, cause, Cause that access came with, you don't know what he's saying to these guys. And then every press conference, those cameras are there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But Hey, what what's the motto? You know, uh, no such thing as bad press. I don't know if I agree with that, but yeah, you know, at temple, <clears throat> At one point, I'm sure they'll take whatever they can get, and then at one point, they're probably like, "We got plenty. We have plenty." So, right, right, right. Mike, I really appreciate your time sharing some of your stories, and uh, we'll make sure to uh, put out put out all your articles on Coach Cheney and and uh, continue to uh, support what you're doing. I've always been a fan, and thank you for always respectively covering me over the years and and Temple. and I'm looking forward uh, to talking to you soon.
3: Appreciate it. Back at you,
0: and a big thanks to. Mike Jensen of the Philadelphia Inquirer, friend of the show. Mike, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories with us about the great legend himself, John Chaney. Check out Mike's interview uh, articles, excuse me, on Coach Chaney. He did a bunch of great work, and it's definitely worth your time. Check him out, Philly Inquirer. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. We're going to send it over to Kevin Nogandhi. Everyone knows him from ESPN. He's a friend, father Uh, he's temple made temple proud someone I had the opportunity to sit next to at the Maxwell Football Club and just really get to know his wife who's a Gator Kevin's an owl which was just really cool for me to be able to to talk to them Uh, hit it off that was the year the Eagles won the Super Bowl I was with the Bears Um, so just really got to know Kevin which was so cool you know him from ESPN he's He's on Sports Center. He did a bunch with college football this year, NFL Live, baseball tonight, outside the lines. He's really done it all. He's done a women's final four. He's done Special Olympics, which is really cool. He's done that since 2015. He's local to the Philadelphia area for those that are listening from Philly, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philly. And he started at Syracuse, found his way back to Temple. And he's in the Hall of Fame at Temple School of Medium Communications, where I went, which is really cool to me. And he has got some awesome stories. When he started at Temple, working in the media room and, and, and just covering Temple sports, well, guess who the head coach was? John Cheney, the legend himself. So we appreciate you guys hanging in. This is our final interview uh, with the great Kevin Agandhi of ESPN. So with the passing of Coach Cheney, and we've had a few interviews now that you guys have heard on the, on the Not For Long podcast, there's so many different stories. Mike Jensen, I can't even give you one. I'll give you 50. I don't even know where to start. Uh, Harry Donahue, very close relationship with him, talking about uh, they're in Auburn and he's going to get soul food. And Coach Cheney took the bus by himself with the bus driver, a full coach bus to go get soul food and bring it back for Harry and his staff. They all talked about what Coach meant to them individually. What did Coach mean to you individually?
2: Well, Colin, he he meant uh, he meant a lot to me uh, in in many different layers because you know my first um, my first Temple basketball experience, my brother. Uh, took me to a game. I was 12 years old. My brother was actually at Temple and this was uh, 87, 88. Um, I should say 87 because it was before Macon joined. And uh, I remember being at McGonagall Hall. It was a game against West Virginia and there was less than 3000, but the, the place was packed and it was it it was I just remember the environment was so hot in there and it was so loud. And uh, I fell in love with Temple basketball right then and there. And um, I remember walking, uh, walking off the streets of North Philly with my brother. And I just thought that was the coolest experience ever. And from there on out, to me, anything Coach Cheney did, I I followed. And uh, even when I originally went to Syracuse, um, I went there for my broadcast experience, uh, transferring uh, to Temple a semester later, it was, it was the best decision of my career but like, one of the cool things was, I get to be around and and with Yeah, I love the Eagles. Uh, if you see my background, I I love the the core four in Philadelphia, but Temple basketball was completely different. Like it was on a pedestal in my mind. So to be around the program and cover, uh, you know, the basketball team and knowing Aaron and Eddie and a few of the guys in the layers, um, everything about coach just represented the underdog that I think you and I have talked about before in the past, that, 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 that was temple. And he made sure that uh, if you ever, you know, got around him that he was going to tell you what was on his mind. He was going to tell you straight about everything and, and the experience, but at the same time, he was going to fight for you. And I always got that vibe from his players and, um, you know, my first real experience meeting him, uh, I-, I shared it on SportsCenter, um, you know, the night of uh, his passing, and it always stuck with me because I-, I woke up for one of his daily morning practices, and I was nervous as all hell. I, I was a teenager, and I was working at the Temple News as the senior sports editor, and you know, I, I watched the practice and afterwards the SID at the time pulled him to the side, whispered and said, yeah, you know, can you talk to this uh, young man? He wants to, to, to um, interview you. And I was a sophomore at the time. And, you know, he screams in McGonagall and he's like, son, where are you from? And, and like literally everybody's now stopping what they're doing after practice and looking around. Right. And then I was like, "Uh, uh I'm, I'm from Phoenixville. And he goes, I don't care about where you're from. I want to know where your parents are from. And I was like, oh, oh, my mom and dad are from India. And I'm the first person in my family born in America. And he's like, come on, come with me. And we, uh, you know, went to the bottom parts of McGonagall and, you know, down a hallway. And then he takes me into uh, his office, shuts the door. And uh, Colin, we talked for over two hours. And the cool thing about it is we hardly, we hardly talked about basketball. I, I didn't even get the chance to bring up a basketball question. And that was the purpose of my morning. Uh, he wanted to know the background about, about my family. He wanted to know about my mom's Indian uh, food and and what she makes. Um, he wanted to share stories about his life. And, you know, when you're 19, a uh, sophomore, uh, that's pretty impressionable, right? And you're in, in the office of a, a, a future Hall of Famer. Um, it really stood out. And I just remember at the end of the conversation, you know, you know, we're going back and forth about food. And I just told him, I was like, all right uh, my mom's going to make you some, uh, real, real home cooking Indian food authentic. And he was like, you better bring it in. And I was like, no, no, you, I will. So Colin that night, I, I went home and, and I told my mom, I was like, mom, you've got to, you've got to make this, this, this. And she's like, why, why am I making all this stuff? I was like, coach Cheney wants to taste your food. My brother was, uh, you know, in the kitchen and he's like, what? He's, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, uh, coach Cheney wants to taste mom's Indian food. And he was like, how did this come about? And I was like, mom, you just got to make some great food. And, um, my, my, my mom at that point is like learning who coach Cheney is and why this is a big deal. And so the next day I bring in the dishes and, uh, I drop it off and I just, I don't think anything of it. You know, she made four dishes and, um, some of the bread. And, and again, it was all hundred percent authentic. So I go to class, and this is like mid '90s, before beepers, before cell phones. I mean, if you had a beeper, you were the cool kid that would go to the payphone, <laughs> right? And uh, I, so, you know, it, it's hard to get in touch with anybody uh, um, until you're done class. So I'm doing my whole thing, and I get back to the Temple News, and my my phone is blinking nonstop, and there are all these Post-it notes everywhere of messages, and I'm like, what the hell is this? And it was the basketball office and um, the basketball manager, Chris, uh, had had been just calling me all day looking for me. And and it was just like, call me back, call me back, call me back. And so I, you know, call him up. I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's like, get over to the basketball office. Coaches, this is the only thing I had to do all day. I had to find you. I had to go to all your classes and look for you. Please come to the office. And I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? So I go to the basketball office and Chris is just like, Coach loved your food. He loved what your mom did. He wrote her a letter. Here it is. And he has all this swag, but it's not for you. It's for her. And I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, yes, this is the only thing I had to do all day. And coach was on my ass about it. And uh, so I brought it home and, 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 you know, I, I, my mom was just beyond thrilled. She got a letter from coach Chaney personally uh, talking about the food, and then the next time I saw him, you know, we talked about what he liked, what he didn't like, and he was just like, I, "This, this part of it." And I was like, "Ah, but you got to put that in the oven. That's the difference from putting it in the microwave." And he was just like, "Okay." Uh, he loved the food, and um, after that, for the next three years, anytime I saw him, you know, come on in, and any conversations we had, it was he was always open the door was always open. And, you know, in the last week, you know, Colin, I've heard so many other similar stories where his door was always open and the conversations were intended to uh, go one direction. And suddenly three hours later uh, you you walk out of there and you just like, what just happened? And that's what coach was. Coach was all about, um, learning about who you were and, and and how he could help you, but at the same time share the experiences with you. And 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 honestly, like Colin, I I, I just go back to so, so so many questions that I had as I was learning my way in this field and navigating as as a college kid. Yet at the same time, you know, Dukes in town or you know, Kansas or UNLV and, and, you know, you're in these press conferences and you look back and you're like, that, that was probably a dumb question by me and coach coach never was there to just kind of make you look back. Coach was there to explain like life at the same time, explain, you know, why what you asked him was a little bit different from what actually happened. And uh, there are many coaches I think uh, that we've seen uh, through the years that, that don't handle that really well. And so I'm forever grateful for his grace and um, and his openness to just say, this is a college kid. Uh, I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to look after him. But at the same time, I am going to tell him the truth with everything.
0: It's amazing. These stories. It's amazing how open he was with things now that you would say, hmm, where are you from? You no, know, I don't want to know Phoenixville. I don't want to know a suburb of Philadelphia. I want to know where your family's from. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, how important I've talked about that. You've done so many pieces on ESPN now about social injustice and acceptance. And I've said it before, it's a responsibility now as an athlete more than ever to be, to educate yourself or at least be able to articulate your thoughts on this. And I'm working the hard as I can talking to so many players in the locker room, but how important would he be in today's society? Having those conversations, Harry Donnie, you said he's so worldly. Like he just had, an unbelievable mind about what was going on in the world certain practices you would come in that guys would sit down for two hours a ball wouldn't even go on the floor they wouldn't even run they'd learn about the world how important would he be in today's world educating players
2: Colin. you know that's a great observation and and thanks for relaying what Harry's saying because it's 100% accurate yeah You know, at the time in the mid 80s, uh, there were no there were no black head coaches that were giants. And it it was just John Thompson and John Chaney. And then you see the Nolan Richardsons of the world who, you know, gained that fame in in the 90s uh, because of Arkansas. But it was John and John who opened the doors, I think, on the national level. Right. Um, They saved they saved these kids lives kids that came from nowhere and and honestly and not only gave them an education but the experience of life outside of where they were and the belief of hope and that's what i think everybody that 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 had the chance to be touched by john saw you know we live in a world right now where it's my social media It's my branding. It's my message. This is my experience. And no one's asking about your experience and, and your thoughts and, or putting things to the side and saying, I want to understand what it looks like from your perspective. And you can say that that has affected us in many layers for John to say, uh, where are you from? And want to know about my parents experience he didn't have to do that just show and and it extends to your your comment about being worldly it extends to what you're doing inside the locker room you're trying to gain a perspective that granted you weren't born with but you want to better understand right and and for me, it was always relatable, I, I was very lucky. I grew up in a, in a household where it was like, we have Eastern values and I walk out and I have Western values and I come home and I try to figure out how to make that work with my parents. But at the same time, my parents were fully aware that I was going out in the Western value world, coming home and they were telling me about Eastern values. So they always understood it's compromise. It's, it's not, this is how it is and it doesn't matter. It's, this is why we do it. And this is what makes sense to us. And I carry that with me, uh, in every conversation I had with somebody that looked different from me, where it was just like, this is what they know. It's not that whether it's right or wrong, it's just what they know. And it's my it's my opportunity to kind of educate what it's like from my perspective and and ask the right questions. The questions that I wish people asked me and John asked those questions where he didn't have to. Um, so I, I think that I, go, I come back to another thing. It's this common bond that I think John saw in many. Many, many college kids in North Philadelphia, we were all underdogs. Uh, You experience that right now, what you do uh, on the NFL level, but you experience that in college. We are underdogs everywhere we go. And and I think uh, Temple, North Philadelphia, and Philadelphia as a whole has always identified that with John, that John is kind of like our piece. He is part of our family where he's the underdog who made it. And at the same time, who's never forgotten about us and he's always stayed true to who he is. And, and I think that you, you carry that, I try to carry that on the air, you carry that on the field, that no matter where our road takes us, we're fully aware of where we've, we've come from. And that, is never, that never escaped John. And I think that nowadays that, that kind of uh, messaging needs to be sent out everywhere to everybody where you can, you can live in the moment, but also don't forget what got you to the moment. And don't forget that the perspective that you have is different from somebody else's perspective. And that if you ask the right questions, you can learn from that expe- perspective and be a better person overall.
0: That's unbelievable. And there's so many great tidbits there. I want to just hop off the coach Cheney trail right here and just quick sidecar Eastern Western values. You had the open mind. Your parents had the open mind to allow you to explore and and learn. How much has that impacted your family? How much is that going to benefit your kids, your wife? The ability that your parents you know, gave you and they accepted everything that was going on, where you could see both sides of the world, literally.
3: Yeah,
2: it 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 changed everything. Like uh, my parents' approach to to that of being open minded, that changed how I live my life, how I approach things. It, it helped me with um, I think every single interview I've, I've ever done because I'm not coming from my perspective. I'm trying to understand their perspective. Right. And, and you, you know, I, I, I look back at my interaction at, let's just start with the, you know, the temple basketball program where, you know, you, you got guys like Huey Futch who, who came from nothing, like nothing. And he now is, you know, in a city and he's surrounded by, you know, people where, you know, his family's gone in Florida and he had to deal with Lee. He, he lost his house in a storm, in a hurricane. And now he's got to pick up the pieces. And, and for me, it was never about my experience in my life in you know, middle, uh, middle-class world uh, outside of Philadelphia. It was how do I understand Huey Futch's experience? Right. So I, I think that with my parents, you know, understanding the balance that we have to do—it uh, it played a huge role in, in shaping how I viewed everything. You know, the cool thing is is that you know my mom and dad took me to India uh, at a very young age, on multiple times and multiple ages, so I could see a different perspective, and then I could understand the things that they were saying, and be appreciative of the things that I had when I came back to America. And and they didn't have to tell me. I could just see it with my eyes. I could see the poverty and I could see where my parents grew up and how they didn't have anything. And they came from literally nothing to build a family in America. So that that to me gave me so much perspective without uh, it just saying this is how it is. It was no, this is what we know. This is what you know, but we want you to see and understand why we did what we did. And uh, with that, it's it's helped me educate my kids. You know, you know I you know I married an Irish Italian, and her perspective is completely different. She she grew up in Florida, and and she you know doesn't see the world the way I saw the world. So for us, it was always just hey, let me understand where you came from. She's understanding where I came from. You know, one of the tests that. You know we were dating and one of the early tests in our relationship was uh a few months in i took her i took her to a family wedding an indian wedding and, and that, that was over 500 people and i was like this is a test if she could survive this then i think we'll, we can move on She's and in. Move forward. <laughs> because it, there's a lot of things going on in an indian wedding when you have over 500 people and everybody wants to talk to you and, and she handled it really well but it was a small little thing where you're gonna see life from my perspective and let's see if you can handle that perspective, you know, without me saying anything. Um, and now, you know, when we uh, raise our kids, you know, it's, you know, me explaining to them, hey, you've got the best of what your mom's world is and the best of my world. And, and it's come together here for us to understand. And now, you know, my my one son's in third grade and he's he's bringing up stories about what they're learning, uh, you know, with civil rights and Martin Luther King and, you know, Black History Month. And, and he, in the car today, he brought... An experience up that he's learning in um in school and, and it, it allows me to explain certain things to him by saying listen that 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 was their perspective and you have to understand their perspective the same way one of your friends isn't going to understand the perspective of what you're going through in our house and that's when you know it it, it kind of clicks right colin and and uh, I, I was very lucky that um my parents have been o- very open-minded with that because if they weren't i wouldn't be in broadcasting plain and simple uh I'd be doing something that my parents wanted me to do and whether that was uh in business whether that was in law school for my mom or whether that was uh you know my dad's big dreams of me getting into politics um uh, none of that happened so uh but uh they also understood that finding my way but at the same time still having the core values that they raised me with was was maybe the most important thing that they could uh influence me as my parents
0: the Irish Italian Gators—they're—they're they're my favorite type of people. I am—I am one as well. A little side story: uh, I got to go to the Maxwell Football Club uh, Awards. Um, this was two, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and uh, I got to sit next to the Nagandi family. How lucky am I? Trey Thomas. We had a great table. I'm like Bears practice squad tight end. Like, how lucky am I? This is fantastic. So I'm talking to Kevin. All of a sudden, I get to talk, get some time with, with Kevin's wife. She's a Gator. I'm a former Gator uh, and a former Al, obviously. So great- hey, uh,
2: You're the perfect blend. Like, you're our perfect guy. Like, you and, and Trey Burton. Yeah. Uh, and there are so many layers with Trey because Trey is from Sarasota, Venice, where me and my wife met. And I know, like, Trey and I knew each other. Like, I reached out to him when he was, you know, uh, a freshman at, at Florida. So then he goes to Florida, then he goes to the Eagles. So it, it, it's like we have these common things and it, it's the tight ends, right? Like yeah. it, it, It's so funny how that all works out together. And, and we had a blast at, at, at the table that night. And honestly... My wife was just happy that she could talk to somebody about the Florida Gators as she is surrounded by a whole bunch of Philadelphia, you know, knuckleheads, right?
0: <laughs> it's the same story. And then you're telling the same story about this cheesesteak or this place to go out in Atlantic <laughs> city after the Maxwell clubs or whatever it may be. So we got to divert and have a great, whatever, probably our conversation. We're talking during the presentation. We didn't care. We're talking about the swamp and all the great spots in Florida that we love and, Trey is the best, by the way, he's a mentor, you know, for me, a guy that I follow, you know, on and off the field. And I got to play with him in Chicago for a, a, a good bit of time there, a couple months, which is a Pretty long time. Cool. He's the best. And obviously we were teammates of Florida. He was not a tight end in Florida. He yeah. was running back, quarterback, receiver positionless, but just a great player. And did it the hard way in Philly. Um, Practice, you know, he was the last man on the roster. Someone got hurt the first game, I believe, on kickoff, and he and he never came off the field. Yeah, so yeah. He, he's missed in Philly. So um, we'll have we'll have Trey on. Maybe we'll have you pop on to our interview. And, and
2: oh, that'd be awesome. That 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 would be. We love his family, his
0: beautiful wife, and his three kids. It, that that would be cool. Yeah, and good friends with his with his brother Clay as well. He's coaching at Venice High. They're they're great people. Uh, so you talk his impact nationally, right? how he affected it academically, he's a you know one of two or three black coaches in that era that really just paved the way for what college basketball is today. You talked about his impact on you personally, the stories, the personal investment he had in you as a human and he really didn't have to do that at all. From your perspective, following the team for years, close from afar, what was his impact on, the actual players themselves.
2: Wow. Um, listen, I, you know, uh, just seeing Aaron, uh, Aaron McKee, the head coach at, at Temple. Um, he, he, I think, he is the perfect example of of John Chaney's impact. You know, he, he basically he fought Prop Forty Eight. That is Coach Chaney, where he felt like you know the standardized testing was actually uh, unfair um to many uh urban athletes and as a result uh, they if you can't qualify you you don't get the opportunity to um to go to school as a freshman where you are on scholarship and uh John was fully aware of what that did you know and, and and how it it you know it to me basketball was a way out for guys like Aaron and Eddie and you look at you know through through the history of all the players that he recruited where he targeted players that, that, that had the talent, but that slipped through the cracks. And Aaron was one of those guys where Aaron, Aaron played at, you know, at high school with a a guy that was underneath John. So like basically Aaron is the perfect model of, of the John Cheney upbringing. Right. And he was he was everything about what Temple is. If you look at like the the Sixers run right and all of Allen Iverson twenty years ago, Aaron was a glue guy. Aaron was the guy that you know I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be the glue of this team and do all the small little things and play defense and 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 take a shot if we need it. But at the same time, I'll be the calming influence. Um, Aaron coming back and and taking over uh, the program, and I think he identifies with who they want to recruit and how they want to bring back, you know, the temple, I think toughness, right? The temple tough that that John incorporated in the early 80s. That that is what that is what Aaron is. And so to me I I, I look back at many of the players he recruited and, and and their success stories, you know, Jason Ivy coming back and and many of many of the guys that have ties back to the program that I think that was, that was John's legacy that made John extremely proud. And, and most importantly, it's, it's many of these guys that, you know, they had NBA careers or, or careers overseas, but they came back and got the degrees, right. The Rasheed Broken Burrows, who who's the first of his family to get a degree and what he had to go through. And, and the, the one thing that, that always stood out for me with John is when he went out and recruited kids, he wouldn't make false promises. He would sit down with the family and say, "I'm going to give your son this opportunity, but I can't do it for him. I'm going to give. I'm going to put him in a, a position to do this, but I can't, uh, you know, move him there. He's going to have to want to do it himself." I think that type of messaging was, "Hey, I will provide the doors to open, but your son has to walk through it." And I think when you you have that kind of messaging to many of these parents who just want to see their young men grow up to be responsible adults who are fully aware basketball is great but after basketball what's next um john provided that safety net and said if if you're not going to do it the right way you're just not going to do it like i've heard a variety of different stories you know all the way back from you know when he was at cheney Uh, state and some some stories where you know professors would reach out and call them up and be like yeah this player is I haven't seen him in class or he's not doing a good job and John would basically call that player in and just be like you're not playing basketball you're not practicing with the team until this is figured out Uh, I think that that that's the lasting image it's like handle this right handle your responsibility and then you could do this opportunity and so that that's what stands out to me those those stories, the Broken Burrow story, um, you know, the recruiting process for him and where he came from and, you know, for him to get his degree and to continue a career. And um, Aaron, Aaron is is the guy that represents, I think, all of what John is about and what John's lasting legacy is. And I know that's pretty heavy on Aaron, but I think Aaron was fully aware of it. Aaron's like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for John Cheney. And um, I, I beam with pride, like uh, regardless of the results right now as, as Aaron's trying to find his way. And, and uh, to me, I, I beam with pride watching the basketball program because I just know that, that, that Aaron's going to find the right temple guys, the guys that were John Chaney players and that are going to be tough. They're going to be fully aware of what comes with the territory, but at the same time, are going to represent the university in a great way and you know what and 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 me saying on that that what that's not a knock on fran because fran did a phenomenal job and 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 the players that he brought in represented temple the right way as well um i take great pride in that and i and i think colin i've talked to the temple football team on on numerous occasions by saying just just you know i thank many of the players just rep us the right way because in the end after this sport is done, after your career is over in college or potentially in the uh, professional level, if you represent Temple the right way, you'll understand that it goes much longer down the road. And that's what John was like with all the players.
0: His impact seems endless when it becomes to, when, it, when you talk about his, um, how he changed academics. I mean, that is, that's every sport. Yep. That's, that's changed everything because i'm talking to kids now eighth grade i try to mentor as many kids as possible i tell my parents anybody who comes across you as well kevin anybody on this show that has a high school kid in a highlight video that needs a little help i would love to help because i didn't have anybody to help me that's all awesome. the number one thing no I'm, and that's not me patting myself on the no,
2: back No, no, but that's an amazing thing yeah
0: I, I love doing it i really do it's fantastic uh I'm just being this. This podcast. I'm being transparent as possible. I was at, having cocktails, having drinks down in Key West, Florida. We were watching the Packers-Bucks game. A lady, uh, we were down there talking to, to a great group of ladies. They're all wearing their Packers shirts, and we started talking about their son. And you know, he's lost in translation. And now we, we have numbers. I'm helping his son. I'm texting the son back and forth. Um, but I don't want to get I don't want to get off topic. Essentially, what I tell all the kids is. Your grades matter more than you know. So I'm talking to a a player last night, uh, just mentoring an eighth grade player from our area. And he's just like, yeah, you know, I I had to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I'm just kind of getting by with grades. I'm like, you're not going to play in college. You won't play. Mm -hmm. John Chaney helped you out a little bit. You don't even know who he is. (laughs) But that's literally what I'm thinking last night on the phone. I'm like, John Chaney helped this kid out. He has literally no idea. But he needs to get his grades up because – if you do well in these show, you'll do well early years in, in, in high school. Your early years in high school, you'll be fine. So that's a side story about how I'm on the phone with this kid last night. Like,
2: wow. I love it. No, that's great though. But you, you're you're right. A lasting impact, an impact that we won't even know. And and that goes into you know the players that that John is affected too. Like then they're teaching other kids, right? Like, like what Aaron's trying to do right now, and what a handful of other young men that, uh, you know, that are now coaches or are around um, kids that were part of the John experience. Uh, that, that, that is, to me, it's, it, that's the legacy for, for, for John moving forward and, and how he's going to be remembered. And, you know, when I, when I did that, that, that story uh, on last Friday, um, nationally, you know, doing the obit, Colin, the most important thing was I I asked my uh, producer and and my coordinating producer and and our boss above that. And I said, do we have an obit? And they didn't have an obit, which is an obituary. Like it's like a two or three minute piece highlighting, you know, an athlete's or a coach's accomplishments, and and we put it on SportsCenter, and we kind of remind everybody. So it was like, did we have, do we have an obit? And then we didn't have an obit, and I, was, I raised my hands. I, I, I want to do it, and I know we're on short time, but uh, uh, I want to write this. And, you know, one thing that was brought up was, uh, you know, his situation with Calipari and what happened that day. And and I, and I said to them, I said, it's part of his story, but it's not the story. And it's important that I explain this to uh, the public nationally with this audience that John, John was so many things to so many people. And he wasn't just I'm coming to kick John Calipari's ass. And it's important that I explain that outside of the Philadelphia family. And. um, I, I try to explain that story, and uh, you know, with with John in, in, a, in a three minute segment by by describing what, where he grew up in Jacksonville, and then how he was discriminated, you know, and how he was the Philadelphia Public League Player of the Year, but he couldn't even get you know, uh, a scholarship anywhere because they wouldn't allow Black people to play basketball. So he had to go to Bethune-Cookman and couldn't play in the NBA. He was a guy that could have played in the NBA, but they didn't let Blacks uh, play in the NBA at, at the time. And I don't think people understood that about John. And then, you know, his journey as a Division II coach and and then how he changed things for Prop 42 and Prop 48. And uh, I, I think people get caught up with the headlines of John and his fiery personality, and they ignore... Uh, the lasting impact that he had. So like you said, you know, there are many, many kids in this generation that don't know John's, um, you know, big, big impact overall. They just know, Oh, that's, that's the guy that was at Temple that won a lot of games and it was gotten a a fight with John Calvary. Yeah, exactly. And the cool thing, you know, the cool thing about John, which I always thought was pretty amazing is how they became good friends. And, and, and over time, they did stuff for charity with each other. And uh, that just shows you the essence of who Coach Cheney was. Like, he was passionate and he fought for everything that what he thought was fair. And after that, he will talk to you, you know?
0: It's the beauty of sports, you know, it. the platform is you can't measure it. You really no. can't. And, and if you embrace it and you go in on it, the lasting effect is just it's unmeasurable. Last thing here before I let you go, Kevin, thank you again for joining us. Um, just a little ESPN fun note. Um, how long does it take you to prepare for that, for that obit? Um, or is it hard to squeeze it into three minutes? Uh, just maybe a yeah. insight.
2: Okay. So like, uh, for example, on a day like that, I was actually in this room. Um, and it was a week ago and, um, I got word about, you know what happened and when i say this room for for people that are not uh um having a visual of the podcast I, i'm in my basement and it's kind of like a semi man cave taken over by three kids we got a dollhouse behind me and and we got a lot of other uh toys on on the ground uh i was in this room and i got word about john's passing and literally you know after that um i'm texting my bosses we're trying to get information and um so this is in the afternoon and we have a 6 p.m. sports center and I got in um, and I started writing the obit around three fifteen, and it took me an hour and and I mean to be transparent um you know, I, I had to take a couple breaks. I was pretty emotional. Uh, There's a lot of tears at my desk at ESPN, and my co-anchor that day, Ryan Smith, um, came over and caught me in a mid-cry, <laughs> and 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 we, you know, by the end of the conversation, we're talking and laughing because he's a Philadelphia guy too, and his father um, was at Cheney State, so we were sharing some John Cheney stories, and it was it was the best thing. He was a phenomenal teammate, so I'm I'm writing this whole thing out. I get the the piece written and done at four o'clock, then I have to send it to the assignment editor, a news editor who has to check it, I have to send it to two of my bosses. um, And not my bosses, but my producer and coordinating producer who I'm working with, and a researcher, and they're all proofreading the piece. And they're just making sure everything I'm saying lines up and all that. Then after that, after everybody approves it about 15 minutes later, because we're on a deadline now, I have to go track the piece. So I tracked the piece and now it's 4.30. I have to now send it to the video editors and two people who have been pulling tapes and videos because you know, you're know you looking for, for, for video on file that's 20, 30 years old, right? Um, so they have to pull that video. And now the deadline is this. You've got to turn this around from 45, 4.45 to 6 p.m. And they're now working on a deadline. Now I... Start writing the 6 p.m. show, the hour show, and I start writing at 4:30. So you're, you know, you're you're writing on deadline mentally. Boom, 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 boom. And um, it was supposed to air at the end of the A block around 6:07, and instead we called an audible and said, "Let's. We want to do it right. We want to finish this the right way." So Kevin, we're going to have you on camera uh, for for your reader on John explaining the story about the first time I met him. And then we'll, we'll show a graphic of his ac- accomplishments, go to break. And then in the B block, which is going to be, you know, from like six, uh, 11 to six we're going to air that the John Cheney piece. And I'm like, okay, so all of that is going on in the middle of the show. And, you know, you're adapting and adjusting. And that's what, that's what it's like on a daily basis because, you know, we'll have breaking news. um, that comes down at 5:30. That comes down at 4:45. That sometimes comes down at 6:15. Golan, and it's nonstop. And uh, there's nothing nine to five about my job on a daily basis. But that's why I love what I do.
0: There's nothing more satisfying than killing a. Uh, well, I shouldn't say there's nothing. You you could probably speak on this. But there's nothing more satisfying than killing something that you know you didn't have a lot of time to do, and you just.
2: Boom. Yes. And, Colin, and it's very relatable. And you you actually get a taste of both worlds because you, you understand the media aspect, but very relatable to your experience as a football player. Um, sometimes there's moments where you're doing nothing and it's it takes some time and then all of a sudden, boom, got to go. Right. And that's kind of how it is with us. Sometimes you're waiting and waiting and then boom you got 15 minutes to turn something around. you got 20 seconds to turn something around. It's the same way. And this all goes back to the preparation uh, while you're waiting. And if you can prepare and prepare, prepare, then you're ready for that 15-second turnaround. And at the same time, the adrenaline rush, nothing will meet what you experience on a Saturday and Sunday catching a pass and feeling the crowd. Nothing touches what I can do on a daily basis on the air when the red light's on. It just it, There's just nothing. I mean, maybe the only thing that can touch it for me is speaking to a live audience or going on the road and you're in an environment where, you know, you're, the scene set is the field behind you and you have, a, you know, thousands of fans screaming. Nothing can touch that.
0: There is nothing better than mid-game adjustments. I love it. And, yes. you and you execute and you get a seven yard run because I live in that world <laughs> not a seven yard pass unless there's a touchdown my only catch on the year but that's neither here nor there there's nothing better than the midstream adjust to get it done and yeah you don't feel a whole lot to be honest with you Kevin when you catch a seven yard touchdown and even though there's only 5,000 people in the stands I couldn't feel a thing
2: you could feel it because you're so numb on the experience right
0: <laughs> no idea and you're like sore, you're sore the next day I remember from our big games at Temple I would be more sore because the adrenaline was so high and I'm like man I didn't hit, how did I hit I didn't hit my hand yesterday yeah I watched the film boom you see my hand slap on the back of somebody's helmet and it's, um, I can't even I can't even shake somebody's hand right now so <laughs> adrenaline rush is nothing like it uh if we can legally which we'll find out if we can show your little piece in the back end of our video here that would be fantastic um Kevin Agandhi temple legend safe to say ESPN legend phoenixville as we know that espn legend safe to say going on your halfway through your second decade at espn um thank you so much for your time our friendship um you know you're someone i look up to and and and, uh, now lucky to call a friend for several years now so we'll have you back to tell your story because you and i could go forever maybe on some downtime for you so kevin aghani thank you again
2: Colin, it is uh, my honor. Thanks for having me here. It's always great to catch up with you. I'm really proud of you. You, Honestly, like for, for a lot of reasons uh, to, to continue to pursue your dream on the football field with the XFL experience and then to realize it and catch an NFL pass, like nothing better. And, And, and honestly, like, Uh, We are rooting for the Panthers. They are the, uh, the temple South and uh, my second favorite NFL team, uh, because I know all the backstories of what you guys went through and it's not so much uh, you know, it, it, it's not about being a star. What it is, is it's, finding and realizing your dream on a daily basis and I'm just happy that you could fulfill that that there, there's nothing better than that Colin that hard work paying off for you and um keep doing what you're doing you you represent a lot
0: of uh, of the great things that Temple University is about I appreciate your uh, kind words and and support and your texts throughout the years so.